going to be looking at how to live in both holiness and the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, there really should be no question that both freedom in Christ and holiness are not only compatible, they're necessary. In fact, to pursue holiness without that freedom is going to result in legalism. And if you're going to pursue that freedom without holiness, you're going to end up in licentiousness. And God hates them both. They are together. We have freedom in Christ, but we walk in holiness. Now, in saying that, I am sure that at some point during the series, I'm going to probably step on your toes at least to a little bit. Uh, I know in preparing these things, I step on my own. And uh, that doesn't feel good either. However, before you get upset with me, or you just toss it aside and say, well, that's just pastor's opinion, I I hope you'll take the time to think through these issues we're going to be bringing up in light of what the Bible says. If you were coming here, if you're coming here and all you want is my opinion, then uh, either you think way too highly of me or I'm failing miserably at my job. Because our purpose here is to get a challenge from God's word and understand what his will is, his desires are, and how we should live a life that would then be pleasing, honoring, glorifying to him. That's our purpose. Now, personally, my goal is to challenge you with the word of God so that this purpose would be fulfilled. I want you to understand his will. I want to encourage you in walking with Jesus Christ in a manner worthy of your calling in a way that's going to be reflective of him, and that's going to be in following the principles and precepts of his word. So that's our desire. Now, if you were not here last week, you need to pick up either the the audio tape or the audio CD, or you get a copy of the, uh, the text from last week's sermon, because all I'm going to be doing the next several weeks is taking all the principles I gave last week, the ten, ten principles of making these decisions, and trying to apply them to specific circumstances. So you'll need to pick that up just so you can kind of catch up and, and know where we're going. Now, the first area that we're going to deal with in more detail is going to be the area of drugs. Drugs. Now, there are, of course, two extreme views on the issue. There are those that would say you should never take drugs of any kind... It, Period. Never take them. And then there are those that just think, hey, take anything. If it makes you feel good, why not? Okay, you got two extremes. question is, is, what does the Bible say? What biblical principles apply to your life when you think that you're going to take some, some drug of some sort? Now, the first major principle, and probably the most obvious, is that for the Christian, nothing illegal. We should not use illegal drugs. Why? It's a very simple reason. The Bible tells us that we are to be in obedience to the authorities that are over us. Remember back uh, a few months ago, we examined Romans, and we were in chapter 13, verse 1. We did a whole study on this. Verse 1 puts it clearly. Let everyone or every person, Romans 13, 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So unless the government's commands or its, its laws are in contradiction to God's commands, we should obey them, period. If we don't like those laws in this country, we have the privilege of being able to change those laws through a reasonable process. And you should be involved with that. That's a privilege we have. Many nations don't have that, but we do. You don't like the law, seek to change it in the proper manner. So the pr- first principle, the most obvious one, is for the Christian Nothing illegal. We don't do illegal drugs. The second point we need to make is that drugs can be used if they're used properly. Now, we live in a fallen world. We all are aware of that. 
And part of the consequences of sin in the world are diseases, injuries, pain, and suffering. That's a consequence of sin being in the world. And we all experience that to one degree or another. Medicine is a good and a proper profession that seeks to alleviate pain and suffering while helping to bring healing to the body from diseases and injuries. So in a sense, we have to say that medicine is striving to bring relief from the consequences of sin and living in a sin-filled world. That's what medicine's about. Now, the scriptures do speak of both the importance of healing and medications. I'll give you some examples. In Psalm 147, verse 3, we find that it refers here to the Lord healing the brokenhearted and binding up the wounds. The Lord is interested in this, this stuff. Obviously, it's proper for men to emulate the Lord and seek to do the same. Luke, he is a companion of Paul, traveled with him all over the place. He wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. He is known as a physician, Colossians 4.14. Specifically calls him physician. There is no reason for him to be marked as a physician except that the people in Colossae understood he was a physician. That's how they understood who Paul was talking about. Luke, you know, the physician, they all knew who he was by his abilities. And certainly we'd have to conclude that in all the traveling that Paul and his companions did, it was helpful to have a doctor around, right? My family, when we travel, it would be very helpful to have a doctor. Praise the Lord, we have a nurse, so we can take care of the minor injuries, okay? We also find in 1 Timothy 5.23 that Paul tells Timothy, use wine for the sake of his stomach and his frequent ailments. Here's the use of wine as a medicine. And then in Matthew 27, verse 34, we find that Jesus, as he's on the cross, is offered a mixture of sour wine, myrrh, and gall. Now, Jesus refused it, and because he was and what he, he needed to suffer and all that, he didn't have to refuse it, but he did. The point here is that the myrrh and the gall act as a narcotic. It uh, is a, uh, has a stupefying effect on the person. And this was a common Jewish practice. Though the Romans used crucifixion to uh, increase the pain, the suffering while this person's dying, the Jews tried to alleviate that, and this was one way they did it. They would try and give them a drink with this either beforehand or even while they're there to help them not feel so much pain as they're dying. So drugs are not wrong if they're used properly in accordance with a godly purpose. Now, we do not have the power to heal by fiat as Jesus did. He could command it and the person's healed. You and I can't do that. But we can exhibit that same kind of compassion towards people that Jesus had through medications, through seeking to alleviate it, through the things that we now have discovered are helpful. So that's keeping in with... Uh, the principle of emulation that we mentioned last week. We want to be like Christ. We want to exhibit his characteristics to those around us. In addition, the principle of evangelism would be fulfilled like this. How often has it been that through medical care we have been able to open a door for the gospel as we demonstrate a practical demonstration of the love that God has for them through our care for them? And then they're willing to listen to what we have to say about the God who loves them. So the second point is drugs can be used. Now, the third point is that drugs can be dangerous. I think that's something all of us understand here. People who abuse drugs will have a negative result. It could be physical. It could be psychological. Some even die from abusing drugs, and that's not just illegal drugs. That can be over-the-counter stuff. That can be prescription stuff. If you abuse stuff, you're going to have problems. But if drugs are 
not used properly, they also break many of the biblical principles we talked about last week. Expedience, edification, excess, equivocation, enslavement, exaltation. In other words, expedience, they're not spiritually profitable to you if you use them improperly. They're not going to build you up. That's edification. They're going to slow you down the pursuit of godliness. That's the principle of excess. Equivocation, they're going to become an excuse for your sin if you're using them improperly. They're addictive. They're going to enslave you. And then they're going to detract from the glory of God. It takes away from the exaltation that he deserves. So we need to be careful. You don't use them properly. You're breaking all these principles we talked about last week. Now, one consequence of drug abuse that many people are not aware of is the negative effect it has on you spiritually. In Galatians 5, verses 19 and 20, Paul gives a list of the deeds of the flesh. Including that list, in the New American Standard, it's translated as sorcery. In the King James, the NIV, it's translated as witchcraft. The actual word there is the word pharmakia. Any idea what word we get from that? Pharmacy. Drugs. Because they would be used as part of occultic and cultic practices in heightening the ability of the person to have a spiritual experience of some sort. Problem is, is their spiritual experience was an open door to demonic activity. And many of those who abuse drugs end up with demonic problems. That's just simply the way it is. So that's a very negative effect. Drugs can be very dangerous. Now, the obvious conclusion from these first three principles is that Christians should use only legal drugs in the proper manner prescribed according to the label directions. Okay? But let's take this a step further because we now live in a culture in which drugs are prescribed as a means for coping with nearly everything in life. We're finding something that will affect you. And just because a drug is legal and you follow even the doctor's directions does not mean that taking that drug is the best thing to do or even the right thing to do. There are several factors you need to consider before taking any medication or any drug. A primary consideration is the purpose and the actual need. Let me give you an example. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get a headache, I don't function well. Diane functions very well with a headache. I just flop. So, praise the Lord that we have found aspirin, Tylenol, and my favorite, Excedrin. Because I can take that and I can continue to function. That's a great purpose. I want to continue to to do the things I need to do. Many years ago, I had my appendix out. And I'm going to tell you, I was very grateful for the compassionate people to develop drugs that would knock me out. I did not want to feel the knife slitting me open and the doctor getting his hands in there and feeling around to find out what was wrong with me. So, relieving pain is, a, is compassion, it's helpful. And I was also very grateful for those very strong medications that kept me in kind of a... Well, I was out of it. I was a little loopy. My uh, supervisor used to call me on the phone to check on me. I was in the hospital for 10 days for it. I had complications. And she told me later, she'd just laugh and laugh when she got off the phone because I was so stupid-sounding because of the medications. But I praise God for them because they enabled my body to rest enough to heal. And that was their purpose. Now, as great and compassionate as all these doctors were in helping me, not one of them would give me even an aspirin before they diagnosed my problem. So until I went to surgery, they gave me nothing. And I sat there and I was in a lot of pain. You see, they needed that pain to know what the problem was. They needed the pain to know how to diagnose what's going on. So without pain... Sometimes you don't know what's going on. You need that pain. And if you mask that pain with analgesics, before diagnosis, the condition can become worse, even life-threatening. So the context of the situation is going to determine the appropriate response. The purpose of relieving pain is compassionate, but it may not be good in every situation. Now, most of you know that Randy cracked his ribs uh, a week ago. 
And it didn't feel good, did it, Randy? Not at all. And, and then to make matters worse, he, he gets to the ER, and then they tell you that you cannot take pain medication. So he has to lie there with his ribs cracked, hurting. Why? Because the pain is what would tell Randy whether he should be in a position or not. And if it hurt, get out of that position, because that's the way the ribs are going to heal. If he couldn't feel it, he could lie in some way and actually be damaging himself more. Pain is not always bad. Pain can be good for us. Now, the best biblical example that I can think of that pain keeps you from harming yourself is leprosy. It's also known as Hansen's disease. Leprosy is a horrible disease because what it does is you lose your ability to feel things. You lose your sense of touch. And when you cannot feel things and touch things and know that you're actually touching something, you start damaging yourself. People with leprosy, they literally wear out, they wear off their fingers. They become stubs. Many of them don't have noses because they've rubbed their noses away. Or they'll lose their toes for the same kind of thing and have all sorts of foot problems. They can't feel it, so they don't know they're damaging themselves. So they can burn themselves, they can cut themselves, and they don't even know it. You see, pain's a good thing. When you get close to a fire, you go, right? You move it away. If you cut yourself, you react and, and you know, I've got to do something to, to bandage this thing. Pain is a blessing from God because it keeps us from harming ourselves more. So we have to keep these things in mind. There is a context. So even a good thing like relieving pain isn't always the best thing to do. God has given us pain for a purpose. Now another factor that we need to consider a caution for us when drugs are involved is side effects. We have to consider the side effects. Every drug has a side effect. Some are minimal. You won't notice it at all. Some are severe. And different people react to those things different ways. What may not affect me at all may affect someone else a lot. And the side effect itself just says they can't take it. Let me give you an example. Uh, most of you know I wiped up my shoulder out back in December. And I started taking anti-inflammatories. Uh, the the over-the-counter stuff is like Motrin and Advil. And they're great. I took them for a month or so as a drug therapy, hoping that it would help my shoulder heal. And many of you will do that. You have a sore back or something. But you know what happens with a lot of the anti-inflammatories if you take them too long or you take them improperly? You get an ulcer. Well, I don't want an ulcer, so I only took it for a month and then let's go on to the next thing of what I should do for my shoulder. So there's a balancing out of what you must do because there's side effects to drugs. We need to be careful. Um, many drugs uh, have a side effect. They make you drowsy. So if you take it, you're not supposed to drive. You're not supposed to operate heavy machinery. Uh, and because of that, sometimes you just have to deal with a problem the drug would alleviate because it's more important to be alert. You need to be able to drive. And so uh, I saw Melissa, so it's like some of the, the allergy medication that you used to take would make you drowsy. You know, praise the God you have something that doesn't do that now, but, you know, so you go around sneezing all the time because you still have to be alert. And every time you sneeze, you wake up, but you get the point? There are side effects to drugs, and we must be careful in balancing out its benefit and its it's negative consequences. Another factor that has to be considered is the addictive properties of drugs. Now, not all drugs have addictives, but some are. That's why they're uh, either completely off the market, you can't get them, they've been made illegal because they're so addictive, or they're prescription only, so someone's always monitoring to not make sure you're not going to have a problem with them. But even over-the-counter medications can become habit-forming into addictive to some degree if you're not careful how you use them. Remember the principle of enslavement we talked about last week? If you can't easily give something up or it's always on your mind, you're probably addicted. That could be true for drugs. Now, I should point out here just quickly that nicotine is the drug in cigarettes and tobacco 
that makes it addictive. And that's why people keep smoking even when they think they, they, they know they shouldn't. They know it's not good for their body. It's not the best thing for them, but they'll keep doing it because the drug has got them addicted. And that's why there's all these things to try and help people out of it. Now, we understand uh, there's a lot of good medical reasons to not smoke or to break the habit if, if you do. There's good spiritual reasons too. One is you're often in bondage to it. Everything revolves around you've got to have that cigarette. Probably the, uh, another thing is you're a steward of everything God gave you, including your body, including your finances. And you've got to ask the question, is this the best way for me to be a good steward of what God has given me, both my body and finances, if you're burning it up in a cigarette? Can you get the point? So it's not saying that it's in itself is command in Scripture, don't do it, but you have to think through the principles. Why are you doing it? What's its benefit? What's its negative? Are there negative side effects to this that are hurting you? Then it's probably something that God would not want you to do. Now, following this up, there's also the side effects that are psychological in nature. There's psychological properties to many drugs. They'll affect you mentally. They'll affect you emotionally. These can also easily affect your spiritual life. And so you need to be careful with them. I remember one time, um, uh, Diana was watching some, some program. It was a chick flick. And she's, you know... And I'm sitting over there trying to hide from her because I was like, <laughs> like, this is weird. I don't cry at these things. What's wrong with me? And it turns out it was a side effect of the medication I was taking. Because I went and looked at this thing like, oh, no wonder I'm acting so weird. You know? There are side effects to drugs. And that was one of them that hit me that time. I was an emotional basket case and trying to hide it from her too. That, that didn't work. Um, she thought I was just being very caring and compassionate and, you know, finally getting it, you know? It was the drugs. So we have to be careful. There are negative psychological properties at times. Um, now, there are also times where those psychological properties can be beneficial. And such drugs can help you function when otherwise you would be a basket case. You would not be able to function. And they can help you. But even with those, we need to remember that uh, psychiatric drugs, with the exception of those that are given specifically because there is some sort of a uh, chemical problem within the brain and it's alleviate that, uh, like lithium. Any of these psychological drugs are only dealing with the symptom, not the problem itself. And as Christians, we want to work through our problems and find a solution in a greater understanding of our God and our relationship with Him. Now, the drugs may help us through a crisis so we can work on that problem, but as believers, we want to move through and find the cure in our God. Why? Well, Second Peter verse 1 tells us that He has already provided everything we need for life and godliness. Let me read that for you. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, how do we get it? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world by its lusts. You see, we want to mature through things. If we look at, uh, and we've studied this before, Romans 5, James 1, we understand that God matures us through the troubles, the trials, the difficulties of life. It's in the midst of those crises, those, those hard things to get through, that we mature and become like Christ. That's where we hold on tighter to God. We come to a greater understanding of who He is, His compassion towards us, and how He wants us to live. So if you rely on drugs to make you feel good and will not work through those underlying problems you are going to short-circuit God's plan in your life. You will remain immature. And God wants you to mature and become like Christ. So there's a balance with these things. There can be benefits. 
but we always need to be watching and be careful. So in summary, we'd have to say this. God does not prohibit the use of drugs, but we do so only within the law according to the proper directions in the context of the purpose and the actual need. In addition, we exercise proper caution because there are dangers to drugs, there are side effects, and we are going to be weighing those things out, its benefits and its negative effects. We also give consideration to the biblical principles we've been talking about, asking questions such as, is it going to build me up or is it going to hinder me spiritually? Is it going to help me to be like Christ or is it going to enslave me? Is it going to be an excuse for my sin? Is it going to be something that's going to glorify God? Those are questions we're going to constantly be asking ourselves in all sorts of situations in life, but here in drugs too. So that's the first one, drugs. And you can start seeing how these principles end up applying and there's not a cut and dry. That's why we call them gray areas. The same thing could be good for one person, bad for somebody else. But we want to think through all these kinds of questions to make sure we're doing what is right before God ourselves. Now the next specific area we're going to talk about is drinking. And by drinking, I am referring specifically to alcoholic beverages. Now first, understand alcohol is a drug. And so everything I just said about drugs applies to alcohol. It applies to drinking. However, there's more we must say about this subject. Why? Well, first, the Bible says a lot about drinking. It has very specific things, specific instructions concerning wine and strong drink. And then second, there are those that hold both extreme positions. Those that say, hey, drink anything you want, anytime you want. If it feels good, hey, do it. It's okay. You're free in Christ. And those who say abstinence, only abstinence, nothing but abstinence. Okay? Period. And both will claim that their view is the only biblical view. So we need to look and say, well, what does the Bible say about this? Because our goal is to understand God's will, not man's preferences. Now, the first principle is very clear in Scripture, and it involves drunkenness. It is wrong, biblically, to get drunk. Drunkenness breaks all sorts of the principles we have already talked about last week. Excess, expedience, edification, enslavement, we saw it. It just breaks all sorts of these things. But in addition, there are many specific verses that point out the evil of drunkenness. Let me give you a few of those. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Proverbs 21, verse 17. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. It's going to have an effect on you and your wealth. Proverbs 23, 19 through 21. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with glutton, gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Part of the results of drunkenness. Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7. Now, in this passage, there's advice being given to King Lemuel about the effects of alcohol and what is proper for kings and rulers. And then in verses um, 4 through 7, it says that it's not right for kings and rulers to drink lest they forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. So such drink was for those who was, were perishing. Their lives were miserable. They were bitter. And they were to drink in order to forget their poverty and their troubles. And many people drink for exactly that reason. They don't want to know about how bad things they are. Problem is, is that if you do that, your problems don't go away. They just get worse. Forgetting about your problems does not solve them. Proverbs 23, and we'll go back there, describes the life of a drunk. Verse uh, 29, 23:29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? 
Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of the eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. When it goes down smoothly, at the last it bites like a serpent, it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, your mind will utter perverse things, and you'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Good description of the life of a drunk. Now we can go on. Drunkenness, in this case apparently unintentional, got no one trouble. Genesis, 20, or, uh, Genesis 9, verses 20 through 27. Lot, because he was drunk, was, well, he was debased by his daughters. Genesis 19, 30 through 38. Drunkenness led to that. It appears in uh, Leviticus 10, 1 through 11, that drunkenness was a possible factor in Nadab and Abihu. They offered the wrong incense before the Lord. They were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. They weren't following his commands. And the Lord struck them dead. And apparently, drink had something to do with that. In Deuteronomy 21, verse 20, we find that a child that is characterized by stubbornness, rebellion, gluttony, and drunkenness was to be brought before the elders of the people, and then they were to be stoned. This was taken seriously in the Old Testament. Now, most of us have uh, our own stories we can tell about the negative effects of a drunkard or someone who got drunk and the problems. Either it was our own experience before we got saved or some relative or a friend we know that we're trying to deal with. We know the results of these things, so I don't have to go on about that. We know the negative part of being drunk. Now, the New Testament also gives us instruction concerning drunkenness. It's included in the list of unrighteous behavior in 1 Corinthians 6.10. In uh, Galatians 5.19, it is included as one of the deeds of the flesh. 1 Peter 4.2 and 3, he says, this is one of the things that were common among the Gentiles, but which Christians should set aside in pursuing after the will of God. And of course, the most direct command is Ephesians 5.18. We are not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And what a contrast there, just as wine will control you because you lose control and it's, you're following whatever else. That is the way we should be with the Spirit, yielding ourselves to control of the Spirit, following Him. So it's very direct here. So all Christians are to avoid drunkenness. That's an easy one. But does that mean that they should abstain from all alcoholic, all alcoholic beverages? What about abstinence? Is it required? And there are those that, that advocate this. Many people advocate this. In fact, it's very common here in the Northeast among fundamental churches. Some even go so far as to say that when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding in Canaan of, of uh, Galilee, John chapter 2, that what he actually did there is he turned it into grape juice. And they will advocate this and they will argue about it. problem is, is that that's without linguistic or historical support. The New Testament uses three different words to describe wine. The first, glucose. Okay, uh, Glucose, the sugar we talk about. Sugar, it's a sugar... That's where we get this. It's a sugar that you can process from uh, fruit. Now, this word is translated usually as sweet wine because it refers to that wine right after it's pressed. So it's from, from after it's pressed until it's aged. So it's not going to have a high alcoholic content because it hasn't finished the process of fermentation. So it may or may not get you drunk. It could be right, you know, I just squeeze it and there it is, or it could be a couple days old, whatever. Now, we do know Acts 2, chapter 13, indicates that this kind of wine, sweet wine, if you drink enough, can get you drunk because that verse indicates it. It's wondering if these people had gotten drunk on sweet wine. But that only makes sense because you've got to look back into history and what were agricultural practices like. What did they have? If you squeeze out grape juice, how do you keep it from fermenting? It's not going to be easy. 
We have modern practices where we can, uh, we can boil it and then can it so that there's nothing in there and it's going to stay that way. And hence, we get Welch's grape juice. Okay? But they didn't have that process. They couldn't can it. Now, they could boil it and even if they put it in a jug, they would have a hard time keeping it from being contaminated. And yeast, which is what causes the fermentation, is an extremely common contaminant. It's in, the air, it's in this room. It's floating around in the air. Sorry to tell you that. But it's floating around in here because it's all over the place. One of the most common contaminants you can find. Very difficult to keep wine, grape juice, from turning into wine because it's going to ferment at some point. So that is sweet wine. When it's used, it's referring to that which has been freshly pressed. Not fully fermented, somewhere between nothing and, and what would be wine. Now that's the next word. Oinos, common translation for wine, and it refers to the juice which is already fermented. It does have alcoholic content. It has the capability of making a person drunk. That's the word used in Ephesians 5.18. Okay, do not be drunk with oinos, with wine. This is the word that's used in John 2, 9, and 10 to refer to what Jesus made the water into. He made it into oinos. And if uh, you might recall that story, the head waiter, when he got it, he remarked that you saved the best wine for last. This is unusual. He knew what good wine was, and this was it. So his testimony would be is it was real stuff. Now, if John had wanted to say it was going to be grape juice, he could have done it in three ways. He could have called it the fruit of the grape or the juice of the grape. He could have done that. He could have called it sweet wine, the glucose. Or he could have used um, an adjective and called it new wine, new oinos, which would also be fresh squeezed. He doesn't do any of that. He simply calls it oinos. What Jesus made was wine, the fermented stuff. The third word translated wine is oxos. This is sour wine. This is wine that has gone beyond fermentation. Other contaminants have come in, and now the alcohol and the sugar in it are turning to vinegar, which isn't that pleasant tasting, unless some of you like drinking vinegar. I don't, but it's it's turned sour. So it's sour wine. This was what was uh, mixed with the uh, myrrh and the gall when it was uh, given to Jesus on the cross. So those who claim the Bible demands absence, I'm sorry, they're simply wrong. That's not what the scriptures say. There is no such prohibition on Christians. In fact, I can only find two places in the Bible where there are prohibitions. Commanded abstinence. First of all, those who take Nazarite vows. It's spelled out in number six. But a person who's a Nazarite not only cannot drink wine, he can't touch anything that has anything to do with a grape plant. No grape juice, no eating grapes, no... uh, Anybody's Greek here, there's things you do with grape leaves. You wrap them up and you can eat them in different foods. Right, Mary? Mary... Mary's, there she is, right? Right? There's great, good food you can make with grapes. Nazarite couldn't have those either. Nothing to do with grapes. So that's complete abstinence. And then the high priest, while serving in the temple, or actually serving the tabernacle here, they were commanded no wine, no strong drink, nothing, lest they pervert, as did Nadab and Abihu, the worship of God. Leviticus 10, verses 9 and 10. Those are the only two places I can find where there's an absolute abstinence required. There are no other prohibitions in Scripture. In fact, it's interesting to note how much wine was a part of Jewish life. In fact, an abundance of wine was seen as a blessing in the Jewish community. Proverbs 3.10, Isaiah 27.2, and you go on and on about that. You have a lot of it, it demonstrates the blessing of God. If you lack it, it is seen as a curse. In fact, Deuteronomy 29.39 there was part of his warnings that if you do not obey me, these curses will come, including... You're not going to have any wine. You're going to be impoverished. Even in the worship of God, we find that wine was used. 
in Numbers 28.7 explains the proper amount of strong drink that was poured out as a libation offering to God. In um, Deuteronomy 14 is a very interesting passage because it gives instruction on bringing a tithe of produce to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. But if you were so far away that it was impractical to bring that produce down, you could sell it and then you could bring the money to Jerusalem. And then in verses, uh, this is Deuteronomy 24, uh, excuse me, 14, 24 through 27, it then explains what you can do with that tithe money. And here's what it says. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. It was actually part of the celebration that was taking part in worshiping the Lord when they got to Jerusalem. It was part of what they did. In prophecies concerning the future millennial kingdom, we find that wine is going to be a part of it. Isaiah 25 is dealing with the banquet the Lord of hosts will give to those who are in the millennium. And included in this banquet is going to be aged wine and refined aged wine. In uh, Joel 3.18, it says that the mountains of Israel will drip with sweet wine. Joel 2.24 says that the bats will overflow. Now, some will concede that, all right, Christians can drink, but they insist that church leaders cannot. But what does Paul say about it? He's the one who gives the qualifications for it in 1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7, dealing with overseers, with elders. And there it says that they are not to be given to or addicted to wine. The particular word here is an interesting one, paroinos. Para means alongside oinos wine, so someone who is alongside or beside the wine is the word used. So elders, overseers, are not someone who should be found over by the wine table at the banquet. You know the kinds of people I'm talking about that would be found there. You go to a wedding and they're at the bar. They've got the punch bowl there and it's, they're busy with it. That's not where elders and overseers should be found. They're not to be known for that. That's what the text says. They're not to be those who are concerned about it in, in the least because that's way down their list of things to have any thought about. The deacon, 1 Timothy 3.8, it says he is not given to much wine. So that means he can have more than the elder, but not a lot more, okay? okay? He also is someone who's going to be known as not associated with drinking. He can have it, but that's not going to be something you're going to think, oh, so-and-so. Yeah, he's the guy that, oh, he really knows his wines. That's not the character of the deacon, okay? You may sit down, he may have a, a glass with you, but he's not known for it. He's not after it. Interesting, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, it talks about the characteristics of the godly older woman. And there it says she is not to be enslaved to much wine. So again, she can have it, but she's not in bondage to it. Those are the biblical qualifications for leaders in dealing with this. Now, in saying all this, we need to make sure we're being biblically balanced because we live in a society, we live in a culture, and that determines a lot of how we act and behave and what is right or wrong because we have to view those around us. Just because drinking is not forbidden does not mean you should drink. Okay? Just because you have freedom doesn't mean you do it. You must not only consider all the principles we've talked about, and you do need to consider them, all the ones we talked about drugs and all the ones we've already talked about here with wine, the dangers of it, we must also carefully consider all the warnings that are given. Remember Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker? Why is it a mocker? Because a person who's being influenced often doesn't realize they're being influenced by it. In fact, they deny it. Why is it so difficult to convince alcoholics they're alcoholics? because they think they're handling the liquor fine and they feel just great. What's your problem, right? Those of you who have dealt with, with those who are alcoholics, you know what I'm talking about. It's a mocker. It does sting. It will bite like a viper. 
it is dangerous. We must keep that in mind. We must also give extremely serious consideration to Romans 14.20. We'll turn back over there again. We studied this some months ago. Romans 14, verse 20. Paul states specifically here, and he deals with drinking. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is not good, or it is good, not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. So you, as a Christian, must be careful and considerate of those around you and where their weaknesses are. Just because you understand you may have freedom to do something doesn't mean the person next to you understands that at all. They may have come out of being a drunk, or maybe they come from a, a house where it was alcoholic. And they have a real problem with anybody that does, does anything with anything alcoholic. Or it's the, the guy who, um, uh, he's coming out of it, but if he drinks, he's going right back into it because he doesn't have enough self-control. You're drinking in front of him, that entices him, he joins you, next thing you know, he's, he's drunk again. You must be careful. You must love your brothers and your sisters enough to refrain from your freedoms for their benefit, for their edification. That was one of our principles. Will it build up those around me? Is it going to be helpful to them? And so I willingly limit my freedoms. Now, personally, I don't drink. And it's not just because I think the stuff smells bad and it tastes rotten. Because, frankly, it is rotten. I mean, it's fermenting. It's rotting, okay? It's not just a personal thing. It has to do with this principle. I understand our society. I understand where a lot of people are coming from. And especially in my position as a pastor, anything I do, people will use as an excuse for what they don't have freedom to do. So I have to be extra careful here. But you need to consider it as well. So it's not just wine. That's just the example here. But all sorts of things. We need to be considerate of those around them. Do we really love our brothers that much, our sisters that much, that we will limit our freedom for their best interest? And that's what Paul's talking about here. We don't want to tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Is wine that important? Of course not. We don't want to tear down what God's doing in the life of someone else by the flaunting of our freedom. So... If you do drink, be very, very careful lest you do cause someone else to stumble, which is a common thing in our society. Now, I need to make finally a, a, a distinction here. A final point is that there's an important distinction between naturally fermented drinks, that would be wine, beer, and those that are distilled. That would be like uh, vodka and whiskey and rum and gin and all those kinds of things. Now, the Bible only speaks about naturally fermented drinks, specifically wine because there was no distillation process in ancient times. It didn't exist. In fact, distillation did not come until the Renaissance with its advanced science and technology. The earliest reference I could find where a guy was guessing was maybe perhaps as early as 1000 AD, probably after that, was distilling even known. And even then it was pretty roughshod until more like 14, 1500. They didn't know how to distill and get it right. Now, even under the best conditions, the absolute, that's where you're controlling the temperature just perfectly, if you're going to make beer or wine, you can get the alcoholic content up to between 8 and 14%. Lower, the 8 is the beer, the wine is 14. Now, under less than perfect conditions, that's the ancient world, it's going to be a lot less than that. You're not going to get it up that high. It has to be perfect conditions with the right yeast and all the rest. So, ancient wines weren't nearly this strong. We also need to keep in mind that in the ancient world, uh, the Romans considered someone who did not mix their wine with water to be a barbarian they commonly would mix their wine. So they're still not very high in alcoholic content. But what about distilled liquors? Well, 30, 40, 50, even up to 90% alcohol. Obviously then, it doesn't take a whole lot of that to make you drunk. And that's the problem with it. 
a lot less. A one and a half ounce, that's a shot glass of whiskey, has as much alcohol as an eight ounce glass of wine or a 12 ounce uh, can of beer. That's why you can get drunk. So that's why most people, if they want to get drunk, they go for the hard stuff. They want to get there and get there fast and it will do it. So the extreme caution must be used with any kind of distilled spirits. So if you drink, you need to examine your motives very carefully. Why? What's its purpose? Think of all those questions we already asked. And don't use your freedom in Christ as a covering for unrighteousness. Our purpose in life is to glorify God, not our individual pleasure. If you don't drink, then don't become self-righteous about it. Now understand, it is okay. In fact, it's proper for you to ask someone why they do what they do. You can ask them. You should ask them. So why do you drink? Perhaps they've never thought about it before. They've never thought about the issues that may revolve around it. Maybe they are never thought about your thoughts about it. And they're just doing whatever they're doing. It's okay to do that. But even if you do that, you cannot condemn them. You can't think of them as somehow less spiritual than you simply because they exercise a freedom you don't feel the freedom to practice. Okay? Do you understand the point? Don't become self-righteous. And then each of us needs to examine our own hearts of why we will or will not do whatever particular thing. Remember these questions. Is it spiritually profitable for me? Will it help me build others up in Christ? Will it hinder me in my Christian walk? Will it bring me into bondage or will it cause me to lose control? Again, one of the reasons drunkenness is so bad is you are in, you've lost control of yourself. Am I using it as a covering for my own evil? I'm saying, hey, I have freedom to do this, but your motives are not a godly purpose. Am I violating my own conscience? Never do that. Does it reflect Christ's likeness? Am I considering other believers as more important than myself? Am I being careful for those around me? Does it bring glory to God? Those are questions we must ask, again, when we're facing anything in any gray area. But certainly they apply here when we're going to talk about drugs or about drinking. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for your word because it does not pay attention to the thoughts of man. It reflects your will and your desires. Father, for man very quickly strives to make up his own rules, either rules to excuse his behavior when it's unrighteous, Father, our rules to try and think himself holy when his heart is far from you because he's living by his own standards, not yours, and becomes self-righteous. And certainly those things happen when it comes to these areas of drugs and drinking. Father, we're grateful for the things that we've been able to discover about uh, different things that come from plants or animals or even synthetically made that will help our bodies in the healing process. We do not believe in any way that takes care of away from your glory. You're the one that must touch, but these things are, can be used to help along that process. And we understand that it's part of what you've given us and we thank you for it. But Father, give us great wisdom in how we'd use them, that we'd not compromise in any way the principles of your word. That we'd never become someone under its influence or seek our solution in drugs instead of you. Father, our desire is to grow in our relationship with you and reflect Christ more and more in everything we do. And Father, when it comes to usage of alcoholic beverages, we understand that in this society, we need to be much more careful than we would in other societies, that there's a context that must be examined. And Father, while we have freedom, that again, that we would never use that as a covering for our own uh, fulfilling of lusts on our part, covering for our own evil. And Father, that we'd always be very careful towards those around us, not to cause them to stumble in any way, 
but demonstrating our own love of willingly set aside freedoms that we have for your glory and for their benefit. Father, we thank you for your word because by going to it, we have a sure foundation. And it's not just a knocking back and forth of opinion, but it's struggling to understand exactly what you have said in your word. Father, as we prepare to go our separate ways here, we'd ask your Holy Spirit to bring these principles in mind, not just in these areas of drugs and drinking, but in all areas of life, that we might glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.